Our scripture this morning is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. Paul goes on to say, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Mike. Good morning. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, so grateful that you're with us uh, this morning. I grew up uh, in a uh, little city uh, just about uh, 30 miles or so away from Houston. And, uh, and so growing up, I grew up on a, uh, on a street that was uh, rather isolated. It was surrounded on three sides uh, by just intense woods and bayou and, uh, and so forth. And uh, there were uh, very few other uh, kids on the street that were my age. So uh, I have an older brother. Some of you know him. He's a member here. And, uh, and he had a number of, uh, of guys that were his age that he could hang out with. My sister, younger sister, uh, had a number of girls that were her age that she could hang out with. But I really only had one guy growing up that was my age on this sort of isolated street. So he and I would uh, hang out uh, quite a bit together. And uh, he had an older brother, and, uh, and so my brother and I would uh, kind of be sports adversaries to this guy and his brother. And so we'd play wiffle ball, we'd play football, we'd play basketball, just about anything that we could do. At nights we would play capture the flag or hide and seek or whatever it might be. As our brothers both got older, then uh, my buddy and I had to kind of find something that we could do because you can't play a very good game of football one-on-one. -on -one. And, uh, and so uh, we would start just trying to find random things to do. And so one summer, uh, we spent uh, a number of days in a row, uh, I think it was uh, a little over a week or so, where pretty much we just, from sunup to sundown, we carried around baseball bats around the neighborhood and tried to kill wasps with them. And, uh, and then it was a competition. At the end, you would pick up the wasp, and then you would take it, put it in a little jar, and then you would take it back to your house. And then so by the end of the day, our driveway would, my driveway would be lined with hundreds of wasps that we had killed. No idea what my parents thought of that. I'm sure my neighbors thought I was going to be a serial killer or something like that. Uh, but this was one of the things we did. We would also go out into the woods and we would climb up into the trees and then we would make zip lines. And, uh, and they were super fun just to kind of uh, glide along through the woods, but also super unsafe as evidenced by the time that uh, my buddy forgot to check the knot. And so I ended up falling about 15 feet on this uh, root structure. I got up, I just looked at him, kind of glared, and then I just walked inside my house and didn't say a single word or whatever. And, uh, and so these are the kinds of things that we did. Uh, but uh, growing up there with woods and bayou and all that just was an incredible experience for me as a kid because I just got to have adventure and to explore and to have fun. We would do the zip lines. We would... Uh, go hunting for snakes and, uh, and those kinds of things. We would go out and just dig big holes in the woods for no reason whatsoever, put a little leaves on it and just hope something falls in there. Uh, most of the time it would just be one of us that would fall. 
Uh, but these are the kinds of things that we did. Uh, but my buddy and I, one time, we got into an argument. Based on what I'm going to say of the argument, you would think we were like eight, but really we were 15. It asked to who knew the woods better. And we spent uh, an hour or so arguing over who, who really, really was most familiar with, uh, with the woods, who really kind of knew the woods like the back of their hand. And, uh, and so my buddy decided that he was going to have a way to prove it. And so he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to blindfold me. And uh, I'm going to run, not walk, but I'm going to run from this point to a certain uh, familiar point in the woods, and then I'm going to run back. And if I can do it in two minutes or three minutes or whatever the time limit was, then will you concede that you uh, knew the woods better? I was not going to concede, but I said, obviously, yes, because I want to see him do this thing. And, uh, and so uh, I'm a sucker for somebody making kind of a fool of themselves. And, uh, and so, uh, by the way, this guy never wore shoes. So this is just an interesting fact for you. So even on this little run through the woods, he was not going to be wearing shoes with copperheads and coral snakes and water moccasins and all those kinds of things. So anyway, I go and I get uh, a, a, like a handkerchief, tie it around, and, uh, and then uh, he takes off. He starts running through the woods. And I mean, the first maybe 20 feet or so, I think, man, this guy's got sonar or something. Like, he's dodging, he's dipping, uh, diving around all the various trees and so forth. And after kind of dodging this big branch, he comes up, and that's when, boom, he hits this tree. I realized in that moment, he's not cheating. At least I know that, uh, because he is slammed into this tree so hard, it knocks him off his feet. He gets up after a second, kind of shakes his head, pulls off the blindfold, spits out a little bit of blood, he stares at me, doesn't say a word, and walks back into his house. Right. <laughs> now, obviously, if you just paid attention to the, uh, the passage that Mike read, there's a whole lot of, uh, of relationship between this story and that passage. You, so I'll just let you take your pick, whether you want to use that illustration as an illustration of not watching carefully how you walk, or not redeeming the time, or not being uh, wise, instead being foolish. Whatever you want to do this morning, I will give you free reign. The passage applies on a, a number of levels. As we're going to talk about this morning, how we, as uh, those who have been given this new identity, kind of a, a theme of the book of Ephesians, how we are to continue this imagery of walking, walking in light of this new identity that you've been given. And so Paul is going to help us to understand how we are to walk in light of what uh, has been accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. So let's pray together, and, uh, and then we'll tackle the text. First, I just ask that you pray for yourself. ask that the Lord would uh, uh, help you, protect you from any sort of distraction that you might be experiencing this morning. Maybe you, like me, have family in the midst of the storm along the Texas coast. Maybe you come in having had a fight this morning with your spouse or your kids. Would you just offer that up to the Lord? And then would you pray the same thing for those around you that they might uh, be engaged, that the Lord would incline their hearts and open their eyes and minds to His Word? And then lastly, would you pray for me as I am somewhat distracted by what's happening in my hometown and where most of my family is currently? and that I would be bold and faithful to God's Word this morning. So, Father, we bless you for the opportunity we have this morning to gather together, to consider 
these things that you have revealed to us, I pray that you would help us, Lord, that you would use these things to encourage our hearts, to unify this body, that we might uh, love you, we might love your kingdom, we might love each other, that we might love uh, McKinney uh, for your name and uh, your renown. And so help us this morning, we ask, because you're a good father and you give good gifts. And you've proven that by giving us your son and uh, your word. And so help us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look in verse 15, Ephesians chapter 5. We'll look at uh, 15 through 16 first. Paul writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So we begin with this word to us to watch our steps by pursuing wisdom. By the way, speaking of wisdom, the, the elders kind of have looked at where we're going beyond Ephesians. We're getting close to the end of Ephesians. And, uh, and so we've decided that uh, between Ephesians and uh, in 2018, we have about 10 weeks or so. And so we've decided we're going to take those 10 weeks and we're just going to explore the book of Proverbs. So we're going to choose a few select Proverbs and really uh, expound upon those, exposit those uh, together. And then in January, we're going to start the book of Romans together. So that's just kind of a heads up as to where we're going over the next year or two or decade, depending on how long it takes us to get through Romans. But that's where we're going. So in our passage this morning, we're going to see this contrast. It's, it's using language that Paul has used throughout the book where he's contrasting light and darkness. And here, he's contrasting wisdom and, uh, and foolishness or being unwise. Uh, and, uh, and especially as it relates to the way that we are to walk. This is the imagery. The imagery of walking is something that over and over and over and over again over the past couple of months as we've been in Ephesians, we've seen time and again, this is the imagery that uh, Paul has used. And kind of the idea is there is a very distinct swagger to the world. There is a very distinct way that the world walks that we are to avoid. As those who have been given a new identity, we walk in a way that is much different, is profoundly different from the world. Paul's already said this sort of idea in Ephesians 4, 17 through 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So here he kind of picks up that same sort of idea that we are to walk wisely. We're not to be blindfolded by futility, by darkness, or by ignorance. And the first way that we are to walk wisely is by making the best use of the time. Making the best use of the time, that phrase literally, it, it means to redeem or to ransom or to buy back in sort of a marketplace uh, setting. So imagine, if you will, that you're in an international marketplace and you're negotiating, you're bantering about trying to get the best possible deal. That's kind of the imagery here, that you have a certain amount of time, and Paul is saying to get the best uh, use out of it, to get the best deal out of it that you possibly uh, can. You know, there are, there are two types of sermon in, in, sermons in particular that I love to hear. Uh, the first type of sermon are those sermons that the subject matter just seems to be owned by the preacher. If you've ever heard uh, Dr. John Piper talk about 
uh, finding uh, joy in the glory of God. Like it stirs my heart when I hear that type of sermon. Or uh, to hear Tim Keller talk about cultural engagement. Or to hear Zach talk about Navy SEALs or something like that. There are certain types of sermons that you just hear and you think, man, this guy is in their element. The other type of sermon that I've heard that has been really encouraging to me is when a pastor stands in front of a people and says, this is something I struggle with. This is a weakness for me. Because it shows me in that moment that, per- that, uh, that pastor is not infallible. He's not perfect. He's incomplete. He's frail. He's human. So I stand before you as one who would say, if there was any area of my life I think I least resemble Christ, and there's a lot, but if there's one area I say I least resemble Christ, if there's one subject I least want to preach on, it's this, this idea of redeeming the time. I don't naturally incline towards things that are redemptive and productive. I chase walls with baseball bats and that kind of stuff. And yet, my hope is this morning that the Lord will meet us through my weakness and through my struggle with uh, this particular thing. Because the biggest obstacles, the biggest obstacles to my sanctification, the biggest obstacles to my joy, are not things that are morally repugnant, not things that are explicitly prohibited in Scripture. It are the things that, that are morally neutral, the things that are little distractions as I seek to look more like Jesus Christ. My first year at, uh, at A&M, my roommate and I, it was the middle of uh, finals, and so my roommate and I decided we were going to pull an all-nighter. And, uh, and so uh, we went to IHOP, and, uh, and so it's like 10 p.m. or so, we go to IHOP, we're there, we think, man, we can't study on an empty stomach. So we got to order food, and so we order food, and then, you know, while we're eating, we think we should just talk while we're eating, kind of catch up and so forth. And so we eat there, and, uh, and then by the time that we finish eating, it's almost midnight, and, uh, and so we, it's starting to get loud because it's finals week, and there's Aggies all over the place, and they're whooping and all kinds of stuff. And so uh, we think, man, it's, it's loud in here. Let's just walk back to the dorm. So we walk back to the dorm, and as we get to the dorm, we think, you know what, we don't really have any coffee at home, so let's go get some. So we have cars, but for some reason we walk to the nearest grocery store. We get there, and it's closed. So then we walk to another one, we walk to another one, we walk to another one. We're just wandering, not aimlessly, we have an aim, that's to get coffee. We're just wandering down Texas Avenue in the middle of the night until finally we find this place that's open. We purchase some coffee. We come back, it's obviously cold by the time we get back to the dorm. We walk into the dorm room a little after 6 a.m., just enough time to eat breakfast, to take a shower, and then to go to take a final that we've literally not even opened books for. That's kind of what I'm like as a person. Maybe you can relate, maybe you can't. Maybe you have never once in your life procrastinated anything. Maybe you're the type of person that you get something and you instantly do it. I have family members that are like that. Maybe that's not your struggle uh, at all. But I think everyone, in some sense, can relate to the difficulty of this phrase. What does it mean to make the best use of the time? What's so challenging about this command is that it is going to require a profound amount of reflection and wisdom on our part because it requires us to ask, what is the best use of the time? If you're going to make the best use of the time, you have to ask the question, what is the best use of the time. It would be so much easier for me if God simply laid out a formula. 
if he said, this is how many hours you should work in a work week. You should work 40 hours at work. You should spend 10 hours dating your spouse. You should spend five hours per child and three hours with friends and three hours doing housework and 50 hours sleeping and five hours exercising and so forth. But the Bible doesn't do that for us. It doesn't give us some sort of formula for us to work through. The average American watches four to five hours of TV per day. But for some of us, that's not the struggle. Some of you don't watch any TV. You might not even own a TV. Or some of you have a TV and you do watch TV, but you're not in any sense enslaved to it. You just occasionally watch it or whatever it might be. Maybe TV isn't your struggle. Maybe it's Facebook or Twitter or Fox News or CNN or the ESPN app on your phone or fantasy football. Or maybe for you, it's working 80-hour work weeks while you're neglecting your family. Or maybe it's spending hours reading about fashion or fitness or whatever it might be. Or you spend all your time in the gym or you never do any exercising whatsoever. All kinds of ways that we can miss the mark when it comes to this command. Make the best use of the time. I think few things really reveal what you value and you treasure more than does the way that you spend your time. Even the fact that, if we're honest, I think we think about it as our time. This is my time. I'm on the clock here at work. I go home. I spend a certain amount of hours with my wife, with my daughter. And then I think, this is my time. Even the fact that I think about it as my time reveals something about my heart. As with, uh, as with money, we have this infinite amount of, or we have this finite amount of, t- of time And Christ is calling us to budget it in a way that is both going to expose our own hearts and hopefully express His heart for how we use these gifts. And the text also reminds us, it says that the days are evil. Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Over time, we all experience drift if we're not careful. If we're not careful, wastefulness will inevitably begin to creep into our lives and we drift away from our priorities and away from those things which most stir our affections for Christ. As I was preparing for this sermon, again, this is an area in which I struggle, and as I was preparing for, this, uh, for the sermon, I began to have some of my heart exposed as I began to wrestle with the text. And in that moment, I had an opportunity to experience conviction and to offer up in repentance uh, a conversation with Casey where I said, here's some of the things that I don't think I'm doing well. I'm doing all the external things. I'm helping her with dishes. I'm helping with uh, putting our baby to sleep and those kinds of things, but I'm not engaging your heart to the degree that I should. I'm not uh, as present with Larkin as I should be. Even whenever I'm with her, I tend to be distracted or divided or whatever it might be. And so it it was an opportunity for me to kind of uproot something before it became too strong and embedded in my heart. So Paul begins and says, watch carefully then how you walk by watching carefully how you spend your time. And he moves on from there, Ephesians 5, 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So having just written that we should pursue wisdom and not unwisdom, Paul is going to contrast foolishness with the knowledge of the will of uh, the Lord. Scripture constantly is going to scream out this 
uh, difference between these two voices that are beckoning to us. We'll see it in our exploration of uh, Proverbs after we finish uh, the book of Ephesians. But over and over and over, Scripture is going to say there are two voices that are crying out. There's a voice of wisdom and there's a voice of folly or foolishness as it relates to, to, to our context. You have the voice of Christ and you have the voice of our culture. And again, we'll spend a couple of months kind of wrestling through that. And rather than folly, we're commanded to pursue the will of the Lord. So what is the will of the Lord? In the book of Ephesians, in the context here, it's everything that Paul has talked about previously. Everything that we have worked through over the past uh, 20 weeks or however long it's been that we've been in the book of Ephesians, all of these things, this is the will of the Lord. Unity, that the church would feel unified. Harmony, love, compassion, forgiveness, and on and on we could go. And so what is foolishness? What is the opposite of the will of the Lord? Within the context of Ephesians, it's pursuing those things that give birth to bitterness, anger, wrath, division, and so forth. All of the different things that we've talked about in our exploration of Ephesians are a contrast between the will of the Lord and foolishness. Have you ever failed to meet someone's expectations because they weren't articulated, they weren't communicated to you? Your friend, your spouse, your boss, whatever it was, didn't communicate their desires or hopes or expectations, but they still nevertheless had these desires and hopes and expectations. Well, God's will is not like that. God communicates His hopes and desires and expectations for His people God's will isn't like some sort of puzzle in which some of the pieces are hidden for us. Historically, theologians have spoken of God's will through two lenses, or there's two different types or or forms of God's will. You have on one hand, you have what's called uh, the hidden will of God. That's kind of His sovereign will. On the other hand, you have His revealed will. When Paul is telling us to understand what the will of the Lord is, he's talking about the revealed will of the Lord, the things that He has revealed within his word. God's hidden will would include things like what is the name, the actual identity of the person that you are to marry. That's God's hidden will. God's revealed will is things like that person that you marry should really love Jesus. That person that you marry should be walking in some degree of freedom in regards to being married and so forth. God's hidden will is going to correspond with what type of job you should do or what company you should work for, those kinds of things. But God's revealed will is you can't be a mafia assassin or a prostitute or something like that. And God's revealed will says this is the way that you are to do your work and, uh, and so forth, how you prioritize uh, your responsibilities. And so you have this distinction between God's hidden will and God's revealed will. And Paul's not saying that we should know the Lord's hidden will. He should, he's saying that we should walk in light of what is revealed, live in light of what is known, God's word is a lamp. So walk, therefore, in its light. Casey and I celebrated our fourth anniversary uh, this past week, and, uh, and so we got to get away a little bit. And her parents watched Larkin, and we got to do something that we haven't done uh, for 15, 16 months or so. And that is we went and saw a movie. We saw Wonder Woman. It was, eh. But, uh, but anyway, as we're seeing this movie, it's Casey, myself, and then some businessman who got off work early and uh, was seeing the 11.55 showing. 
And, uh, and so um, we're alone, the three of us in the theater. He's sitting up at the top. We're kind of towards the bottom. And in the middle of the movie, he gets up from his seat and he walks down. And, uh, and so the theater is off center because there's an exit to this side and there's not an exit to this side. And so he comes down uh, the aisle to our left and he turns left where there's no exit. And I think, oh, he'll recognize his mistake. But he doesn't. And so he slams into the wall. Yet again, another story about someone slamming into something. He slams into the wall and then he says, oh, that was a wall. He said that out loud. And, uh, and so I'm tempted in this moment to laugh at him. Uh, but I didn't, at least out loud. Whenever he left, though, Casey and I had a little bit of a chuckle. And I really, I, I seriously doubted his sobriety uh, in this moment. But, uh, but anyway, I think of this because it was clearly illuminated. It was actually a pretty bright part of the movie. You know, sometimes you're in a movie and it's so dark that you can't see anything. It's actually a pretty bright time in the movie. If he would have just looked where he was going, he would have seen that's a wall. Besides that, there's an exit sign illuminated over here. I think of that whenever I think of this passage about understanding what the will of the Lord is. God is not asking us to ram into a wall and create our own door. Kind of like the Kool-Aid man who kind of bursts through the wall or whatever it might be. That's not what God is saying. Whenever it says to understand the will of the Lord, it's walk in light of what's already revealed. There's an exit sign. That's where I'm wanting you to go. His path is already illuminated And so the best way for us, the best way for us to know what is the will of the Lord, to know what is the wise path, is simply by reading God's Word. The way to know the will of the Lord is by reading God's Word. If God hasn't revealed something explicitly or implicitly, then you're free. You're free to make a decision. You pray about it, you talk to others, you perhaps fast depending on the decision you're looking to make, and then you just do something without guilt or shame because the Lord hasn't prohibited you from doing that thing. I think, unfortunately, some of us get so busy and concerned and anxious with trying to wrestle through what is the hidden will of the Lord for me in this circumstance that if we're not careful, we'll actually overlook or ignore what is the revealed will of the Lord for us in various circumstances. It's kind of like you're so concerned about where should I eat or what should I eat that you forget to eat and you die, you starve as a result of it. And so Paul says to not be foolish, but to understand the will of the Lord. In verse 18, he says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So let me just say this. The the emphasis on this passage is not on alcohol. The emphasis is on being filled with the Spirit. That said, I want to kind of step away for a second from the passage itself and talk a little bit about alcohol for two reasons. First, because there is a contrast that we're intended to see here between being filled with alcohol and being filled with the Spirit. And so if we're going to understand being filled with the Spirit, we have to understand something of this uh, relationship, this comparison uh, to alcohol. And then secondly, because we, are, we exist within a strange context. Throughout the world, this is not uh, as big of a problem, but uh, post-prohibition America, in particular, not just in all of America, but in particular within Southern Baptist context, this is a, uh, a subject that is rife with misunderstanding. And so I don't want to assume that we're all on the same page as it relates to uh, alcohol. So let me tell you, as an opening caveat, I don't care if you drink or not. 
The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but I do care that you think rightly about something that God has spoken about. I care deeply that you think rightly about this subject because the Bible speaks to the subject. So let me just say right out of the gun where uh, the, uh, the Bible lands. Imagine, if you will, there's a road. And on either side of the road are these cliffs just going down into infinity, all right? And, uh, and so there is this road, and on either side of the road, there are these cliffs. Your goal as you're driving along is to stay on that road. It does no good to avoid one cliff only to fall off into the other cliff. Biblically, there's a road as it relates to drinking, and on either side of that road, there are cliffs. On one side of that road is a precipice that we call licentiousness. It's just, li- uh, it's just liberty without restraint, without limits. It leads to drunkenness and those kinds of things. On the other end, on the other side of the road, is a ditch that is called legalism. That's judgmentalism. That's self-righteousness and, uh, and so forth. These different uh, cliffs appear very different. One is filled with alcohol. The other one has never touched a drop of it. And yet, I'm fascinated by the similarity that exists between these two different dangers. First, because both deny the sufficiency of God's Word. Licentiousness is going to cut out and ignore parts of God's Word as it relates to drunkenness and excess and immoderation. Whereas legalism is going to add to God's Word as it creates this Uh, unbiblical standard, this tradition, this man-made tradition, this wall around God's law as it relates to drinking. In addition, both are going to be forms of bondage, whereas licentiousness is maybe bondage to alcohol itself. Legalism is bondage to tradition. Both are hazardous. There's a great threat, obviously, in drinking to excess. Not only is it sinful, but it's unhealthy and dangerous, but there's also a great threat in legalism as it creates laws and rules where God has not. And in light of these similarities, neither is right and good. And both displease the Lord. So the road has two cliffs to avoid, but the road itself is marked by both liberty and love. Let me tell you where the Bible lands. In moderation, a Christian is free to partake of alcohol, but... There are certain contexts and circumstances in which it would be unwise or even sinful to do so. So let's talk a little bit about legalism, and then we'll talk a little bit about licentiousness and bring it all together. Let me begin by saying what legalism is not. Legalism is not simply telling people to obey where God has told people to obey. I've heard that before, as if if I tell somebody you have to give up pornography or you have to give up this adulterous affair or something, they will say, you're just being legalistic. No, I'm not being legalistic. I'm being faithful. There's a difference between just simply calling someone to repentance because God has and legalism, right? There's really two types of uh, legalism. There's two main forms. First, it's when you tell someone that God's love and God's acceptance for them are dependent upon their morality. That's a form of legalism. But that's not the time of the type of legalism that we typically think of when we think of drinking. The second type of legalism as it relates to drinking is that it creates a law where God has not. So as it relates to drinking, legalism might say that it's inherently 
or always sinful or unwise to drink. The problem with that is the Bible itself never says that drinking is necessarily or inherently sinful or even that it's always unwise. This is an example of us not trusting in the sufficiency of God's Word, not trusting the fences, the boundaries that God has created for us, and instead building our own fences around God's Word, something that Jesus regularly and passionately criticized in the religious leaders of his day. In fact, the Bible is going to speak of the blessings of alcohol. Deuteronomy 14, 26, and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord God, uh, your God, and rejoice you and your household. Psalm 4, 7, you've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Psalm 104, you cause the earth to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Proverbs 3, honor the Lord with your wealth and with your first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Isaiah 25, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Throughout the Bible, a lack of wine is going to be seen as a metaphor. It's an image for God's judgment upon a people and a place, whereas the provision of wine is going to be seen as a blessing upon a people or a place. Not only did God create the natural processes that led to alcohol in the first place, not only does he speak often of its blessings, but we see that the Son of Man and the Son of God turned water into wine. He drank wine himself. He even instituted the drinking of wine as one of the two enduring ordinances of his church. Up until the Prohibition era in America, in fact, every cultural context celebrated communion with actual wine and not with grape juice because there was no process to keep grape juice from fermenting naturally into wine. But you might ask, what about the dangers of alcohol. I won't read them all, but certainly there's dozens of passages that we could explore. The Bible is very clear on the dangers of excess and drunkenness. Even our passage this morning talks about not being drunk, but those warnings are not about alcohol itself. Those warnings are not about moderation. Those warnings are about excess. And you could apply the exact same argument to anything that could be used in excess. Uh, to sex, to money, and so forth. The inordinate love of anything can lead us into sin. Alcohol can be abused, but so can sex, cars, guns, knives, the internet, or just about anything else. Anything with a proper use can be misused, can be abused. When I was in college, I had a roommate, for whatever reason, he was eating my Funyuns, and he wouldn't stop. And I told him, if you don't stop, I'm going to throw a spoon at you. And I did, and I hit him right in the face. That doesn't mean that we outlaw Funyuns or spoons or whatever it might be. Anything can be abused that has a uh, proper use. There's something in the human heart that loves to create rules rather than walking in wisdom. As with redeeming the time, we want a formula. It's so much easier for us to simply say something like no alcohol at all or all alcohol all the time and not have to parse out when and how, and how much, and so forth, and so on. So again, my goal for today is not that everyone leaves here and goes to Applebee's and orders a margarita. 
But my goal is, if you do leave here and you go to Applebee's and you see somebody else, one of the other members here, another brother or sister having a margarita, that you don't judge them. I'd rather you judge them for eating at Applebee's <laughs> than for having a margarita. Why? Because at least when you judge them for eating there, you realize it's somewhat silly and subjective. We can't be a people that judge where God has not. And God has not judged drinking in and of itself. He has judged excess and inordinate drinking. Now, the other side, the other ditch to avoid is licentiousness. Again, that assumes liberty is unlimited. I can do whatever I want with it. I'm going to ignore the passages on drunkenness and excess and immoderation. You know, in 11 years of pastoral ministry, I've found that many of the biggest scandals that I've seen in churches regarding drunkenness were people who grew up in a highly, highly legalistic context. They grew up in these contexts where they're told all drinking is sinful at all times. You should never drink no matter what. And then they come to the Bible itself and they see it doesn't actually say that. And so what do they do? They jerk the will. They overcorrect. They plunge off into the other ditch. So even though drinking is not necessarily sinful or unwise, depending on the circumstance or the context, drinking absolutely may be foolish. It may even be sinful for you. So let's talk foolishness. If you've historically struggled with drinking, if this is an area that has historically mastered you, I think this is an area where you might be wise to refrain, at least for a season. If this is an area you can't do in good conscience for whatever reason, you're probably wise to refrain in order to examine your conscience and convictions and, uh, and so forth. But what about when drinking is sinful? I can think of at least three circumstances when drinking is sinful. First one is obvious, when you get drunk. Drunkenness is a sin, always, all the time. Anytime you get drunk, it is sinful. There's no extenuating circumstance for you or something like that. The problem is the Bible doesn't give us some sort of breathalyzer. There's no biblical breathalyzer for us to consult to say how much is too much. That's the kind of question that teenagers ask whenever they are having a conversation about how much physical intimacy they can have uh, with their boyfriend or girlfriend. I always say, it's a horrible question. Your goal is not to get as close to the line as you possibly can. Your goal is to flee, to flee from temptation, to flee from immorality and, uh, and so forth. A second situation where drinking would be sinful is in context where drinking would be illegal. Romans 13 is very clear that we are to be subject to governmental authorities, and that includes any sort of laws that don't infringe upon a Christian duty. So if you're underage, if you're drinking while driving, any of a, a handful of other contexts, you're on probation, whatever it is, where it would be illegal for you, then it would also be sinful for you to imbibe. And third, and the one that's hardest and the one that's most requiring wisdom, Romans 14 talks about the necessity of laying down your rights for the sake of others. For you to drink around someone whom you knew, and I think that's the key thing there, someone whom you knew to be hurt by your drinking, it would be sinful for you to do so. Now that doesn't mean that, and I think this is what uh, legalism does at times, is it, is it creates this sort of hypothetical bubble. Well, someone could 
perhaps see you, and they could perhaps be hurt or offended or whatever it might be. That's not what the Bible is talking about here in Romans 14. It's talking about you know for a fact this person would potentially be hurt or offended by participation. Then the Bible would say that you should lay down that right for that meal. It doesn't mean that you don't have the right. It means that the loving thing to do is to exercise that liberty with love by laying down that right. Again, my concern is not at all whether we drink. My concern is that we think rightly and love each other appropriately by not applying a higher standard than God's Word. There is room in the church. Hopefully we can all agree there's room in the church for those who occasionally enjoy a glass of wine or a beer or whatever it might be. There's also room in the church for those who never partake whatsoever. I'm not telling you you should drink. I'm simply saying there is room for both. There is no room in the church, though, for us to pass judgment on what God has not judged. So all that's just a kind of a digression on the topic of alcohol. The emphasis on the passage is not really on drunkenness, but it's instead on this contrast between being filled with alcohol and being filled with the Spirit. You remember Acts 2 when the, uh, the disciples are filled with the Spirit at Pentecost? And what do the people around them think? They think these people are drunk. There is this relationship that exists uh, in regards to being controlled and compelled by the Spirit. Paul is saying that rather than being filled with spirits, we should be filled with the Spirit. Although that wordplay doesn't, exactly, uh, doesn't actually reach back, reach back to the original Greek. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? First, it doesn't refer to some sort of second baptism experience. You might have heard that before, that uh, you are to kind of experience at some point you'll have this charismatic uh, gift and the, the Spirit will fill you and you'll necessarily speak in tongues or whatever it might be. This is more of a continuous, ongoing reality of being filled by the Spirit, pointing to being controlled or compelled by His presence. As our senses are dulled, the more alcohol we consume. So our senses should be raised, the more of the Spirit that is moving within us and controlling us and compelling us. We should be more sensitive and aware to our environment, to the needs around us, to our brothers and sisters in a hurt and lost and dying world around us. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who's intoxicated? And in that moment, they think, man, what I'm saying is absolutely brilliant. Was it ever actually brilliant? No, of course not. That's Paul's point here. His point is walk in wisdom. And the way to be wise is to be filled with the Spirit, not to be filled with alcohol. Let's look at verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Commentaries are split uh, over how the next few verses are going to relate to verse 18. The question is really this, how do all these participles, participles like addressing, singing, making melody, all of these ing words, giving thanks, submitting, how do all of these relate to the command to be filled with the Spirit? And there's two main sort of uh, uh, theories that uh, commentaries are split on. Some think of them as participles of means while others say that they're participles of result. You don't need to know those words. Here's what they mean. Are the following things, addressing, singing, making melody, and so forth, are the following things ways that we're filled by the Spirit? Or are they the effects of being filled by the Spirit? Are they ways that we're filled by the Spirit? Or are they effects 
of being filled by the Spirit. The problem is there is a sense in which both are theologically true. There is kind of a cyclical nature. The more that we posture ourselves by being submissive, the more that we posture ourselves uh, by singing, the more that we do these things, the more that we are filled by the Spirit, and the more that we're filled by the Spirit, the more that we long to do those. So what's difficult is theologically they're true, and, and, and grammatically both work. I tend to land more in the idea that these are means, these are ways that we are kind of creating an environment that is ripe. We're not necessarily sort of making the Spirit fill us as we do these things, but we're kind of creating this environment that is ripe for the Spirit's filling. So what does it mean for us to address one another in song? At first, this kind of sounds like some sort of Disney musical. Someone asks you a question, you jump up on a table, you begin to respond to them in song lyrics. I would love that because I love singing. I'm not good at it, but I love singing in the shower, the car, the office, whatever it is. I just love singing. But that's not what it's talking about here. It's not saying that you always have to be singing to each, uh, to each other. In fact, the word translated addressing, addressing one another in song, literally just means speaking. So he's not necessarily saying that we always have to sing to each other. There's a number of places in the Old Testament where someone was said to speak in song. Let me give you one example of that. Deuteronomy 31.30, it says, Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. I think it's pointing to this idea that songs are pedagogical. You know that word pedagogical? It's related to the theory of learning. Songs are teaching devices. We learn theology through songs. Whether you realize it or not, we put a ton of time here into thinking about the theology of the songs that we sing. Before uh, Tim introduces a new song, he gets it to all the staff members. Occasionally we rope in other elders and we kind of wrestle through this and say, what are the pros and cons? And are the cons worth the pros in regards to the theology that, uh, that you're singing. But I think there's even more than just this call to encourage each other with truth, to address one another in uh, the truthfulness of song lyrics. I think there's pointing here uh, to this reality of kind of the formative nature and power of corporate worship. We often think of the vertical aspect of worship, and obviously we should, singing directly to the Lord. But have you ever noticed there is this horizontal aspect as well. Have you ever had a day that you're just not, you're not feeling like engaging the Lord and then maybe someone around you really began to cry out or someone around you raised their hands or someone else around you kneeled down or someone else began to sing louder and it just stirred your heart and you began to sing louder as a result. There is this corporate nature uh, to corporate singing. By the way, there's this interesting reference in Second Chronicle, Second Chronicles where the temple is being dedicated and the people gather together and sing, and as a result of their singing, the Spirit of the Lord fills the temple. The Shekinah glory of the Lord fills the temple. I think that's a little bit of what is happening here. Paul begins with singing as the first means by which the corporate body, the new temple, which is what we are, is filled by the Spirit, which is a reminder to us that this letter is not first and foremost to individuals, the goal is not so much that you individually be filled with the Spirit, but that we collectively, as the body of Christ, might be filled by the Spirit, that our corporate body would be filled by the Spirit. By the way, I've also heard this verse as a justification for why some denominations don't use instruments 
in worship, after all, it says to sing and to make melody, not with a guitar or piano, but with your heart. I think that's silly. That's silly for a couple of reasons. First off, there's no reason to negate the testimony of the entire Old Testament. There are certain aspects, certainly of the Mosaic Law, that no longer apply to us today because they've been fulfilled in Christ. But we don't just see instrumentation within uh, the Mosaic Law. We see it in the prophetic literature. We see it in uh, the uh, wisdom literature and so forth. And so there's no reason to negate what God has already said within the Old Testament as it relates to uh, music. Secondly, if you're going to take the passage that way, then really what you would have to do is not only forbid instruments, but also forbid vocalized singing. After all, it says to sing with the heart, not with your larynx or whatever it might be. So that's not the point. What is the point? That singing shouldn't be begrudging. It should arise from a heart that's deeply affected by the gospel of grace. That singing should be an overflow of the heart, whether it's accompanied by instruments or not. And why is it that singing is so important? Why does he begin with it? You ever think it's fascinating how every single culture that's ever existed that we have anthropological or sociological evidence of has some form of music. It's embedded into their culture. There's certain things, there's certain hints that God has embedded into all cultures. All cultures have something akin to marriage, even if it's not marriage as we would define it, it's something like it. Every culture has some sort of prohibition against uh, just meaningless murder. There's uh, these little hints pointing to some sort of, uh, these are shadows pointing to some sort of gospel substance. I think part of that reason that singing is so important and why it's so universal is pointing us to the reality that singing is something that God Himself does. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. If you were to look back at the context of verse 1, it says, be imitators of God. And God is a singing God. God is a God who experiences or, or, or who is joy. And as an overflow and implication of that joy, he sings. And so we as those who are to be imitators of him as his children should likewise sing and also give thanks. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of those passages where if I'm honest, I kind of think Paul misspoke a little bit. I can get, be generally grateful. I can kind of get someone gives you something or it's Thanksgiving and so you take some time to think about all the things that you're thankful for, but be grateful always. Be thankful for everything and at all times. What in the world does that mean? It seems like Paul is misspeaking, but he's not. He's just simply speaking a language in which our flesh is not fluent. Our flesh prone to entitlement, our flesh prone towards comfort and so forth. And so bear in mind, last week we talked about the commands to rid ourselves of sexual morality and covetousness and filthy talk and how we're to replace it instead with gratitude. That's the way that we fight sin. If we're grateful for our spouse, we won't desire another, for example. If we're grateful for what we have, we don't covet what we don't have. But how can we be grateful for everything? What does that mean when we get the phone call in the middle of the night with the dreaded news or we hear the word cancer or whatever it means uh, or whatever sort of word like that. After all, the days are evil. But I think here's where we are reminded that God 
is good. Even though the days are evil, God is good. Even when we don't know why, we know what. We know that he's good. We know that he works all things according to the purpose of his will. He works all things according to the good of those who know him. And through this sort of knowledge, even though they were covered by this storm, we're able to see through the fog and the mist and the solar eclipse and the hurricane and know that even so, the sun is still shining. So this passage about being grateful for all things at all time, it only makes sense in light of God's promises that we read throughout Scripture. God's promises that says that He loves you, that He cares for you, that He's good, that He's gracious, that He's sovereign, that He's merciful. In light of these things, even when we can't see the sun, we can feel its warmth. I mentioned before, my family's from Houston, so my parents right now are riding out the storm in the middle of Houston. Some people saying it's the worst flooding in the history of the U.S. that they're currently experiencing. They've had 24 inches of rain already, and they're expecting up to 20 more inches. And so a couple of days ago, my parents uh, called me. They went to the store to load up on food and water. They had to wait in line for 45 minutes just to buy food and water. And this was like two days before the store, storm had even landed. And that's what I think we're doing as we cultivate the Thanksgiving by means of theology in this season. We're storing up truths now so that when the storm comes, we'll be ready for it. And the day of the storm, you can't make it to the store oftentimes. And the day of the storm, when that dreaded news comes, when that word hits you, you can't make it to the store. And so you have to have uh, sort of a, uh, an excess already built up. You have to have a stockpile of these truths to reflect upon and to feed upon. You have to have fuel and food so that you can be thankful in the tempest to come. Because gratitude is not natural. It's something that must be learned and cultivated. In fact, the essence of sin, if you're reading Romans chapter 1, is though you know God, you refuse to honor Him or give Him thinks that you and I are inclined towards entitlement and privilege and preference, which is why we're called to this next thing called mutual submission. Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the last participle that Paul is going to give as a means of being filled by the Spirit is through submission. Starting next week, we're going to go into four weeks of really hitting some uh, sort of very con uh, controversial, countercultural uh, understandings of submission. I think I might call it Submission September, even though I don't think the elders will let me get through that. Uh, Zach will probably call it Spicy September or something like that. But uh, over the next four weeks, we're really going to be considering submission as it relates to authority uh, structures. And what's going to be really interesting for us is this is going to be a, an opportunity for us to diagnose our own hearts as we understand uh, just how far or how much we've been affected by culture as it relates to this issue. Most of what we've uh, kind of explored thus far in Ephesians, secular culture would not agree, uh, would not necessarily be offended by. They might disagree with it. But by and large, even secular culture would say things like adultery are not good, drunkenness is not good, and so forth. But what we're exploring is not merely something that uh, culture is going to disagree with. It's actually an area that culture finds repulsive and offensive. The idea of submission within the home. Uh, the idea, what in the world, why does the Bible have something like slavery? Why doesn't God just absolutely condemn it? These sorts of things. So I mentioned that for a couple of reasons. One, to let you know where we're going. 
too, for you to begin wrestling with your heart. Maybe as I mentioned submission in the home, that already exposes some fear. Or maybe as I mentioned the word slavery, that exposes some fear. And I want you to have opportunity to wrestle with your own heart and prepare yourself to hear God's uh, word. So now to this word, verse. There's, uh, there's two different ways to interpret it. I'm not sure which is correct. Zach and I honestly have gone back and forth over the past week as we've uh, thought about it. The first is to see this reference as, uh, as a heading for the coming sections on marriage and parenting and slavery. If we take it this way, what Paul is saying is submitting to each other. In other words, specifically, wives should submit to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. In other words, he's not saying that everyone should submit to everyone else, but that everyone should submit to those to whom it's appropriate. A number of scholars land there. The second way to see it is as commending some sort of mutual submission. Taking it this way, he's saying that all Christians should, should submit to each other in some sense. Now, we don't have time to go into all the details, and Zach's going to work through some of them uh, next week, but I think it's important to set some boundaries based on other texts. Anytime we come to a text and we're not certain what this text says, we look at other texts of Scripture as uh, a helpful interpreter for us. And so based on that, where do we land in regards to what this is and is not saying? First, there's certainly a sense in which Christians are to submit to each other. If what we are understanding submission as there is a call to mutual love, to concern, to sacrifice and service, yes and amen to all of those things. The Bible says we're to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. We're told to serve each other even as Christ serves the church. So in that sense, certainly we are to be mutually submissive. But at the same time, we shouldn't use that as a, as a tool to kind of flatten out what the Bible would say elsewhere about ordered relationships that God has created for human flourishing. That's what the word, the Greek word for submission means, to arrange yourself under someone or something else. I think it's highly significant that wives are called to submit to their husbands, but husbands are never told to submit to their wives. Christ serves the church, but he's never said to submit to the church. The son submits to the father, but the father never submits to the son, as we talked about in Trinitarianism. Even as parents are commanded to serve their children, but they're never commanded to submit to their children. So I think the Scripture teaches reciprocal mutual service, but submission, as we typically use that word and think of that word, is unilateral. It's moving in one direction. Authority within relationships moves always in a particular direction, from husband to wife, from parents to children, from masters to slaves, from elders to church. We never see evidence of it moving in the opposite direction. Starting next week, we will begin to explore some of the concerns that might come with that. What if the, uh, uh, that authority, that headship is abusive? All of those kinds of things that we'll explore over the next couple of, of months. But I wanna, what, what I, a couple of weeks. What I want you to see for now, though, is that there is a uh, unilateral movement of submission. And we can't flatten out the different relationships that God has embedded into uh, his word for our human flourishing. So again, I'm not sure which view this particular verse is laying out, but based on other texts, I think it's clear that Christians are to serve each other. But as it relates to submission, there are particular orders that have been embedded into certain relationships for our good and for God's glory. That's what we'll flesh out over the next few weeks. 
And the reason that we serve each other and the reason that we submit to those to whom we are called to submit is not necessarily, not necessarily because we respect and revere each other, but it says out of reverence for Christ. In other words, we aren't off the hook simply because we don't respect our government or our employers or our husband or our parents. We're not called to ser serve and submit to only those whom we admire and respect. We are to serve and to submit not because others are worthy, but because Christ is worthy. So with all of that in mind, this whole passage that we've tackled covered a whole lot of ground this morning. What do we do with it? What's next? I want to encourage us to do a couple of things. First, to remember, and then second, to repent. We do this a lot. We use these uh, words a lot. First, to remember all of this, everything that we've talked about today is occurring in a context. We've kind of broken up Ephesians, but Ephesians together is one letter. So we've kind of separated the imperatives, that is the commands, from the indicatives, that is what God has done and is doing and so forth. And so the first thing that we need to do is to remember that all of these things occur as an overflow and an implication of the gospel. We're going to celebrate that in communion in just a moment. That all of these things are not ways that we earn God's love or His acceptance. We do these as an overflow of the fact that He has already loved us and accepted us. We don't walk in wisdom so that God will love us and shine upon us. We do those things because He already has. And then second, we repent. Whether we've walked in wasted time or legalism or licentiousness or entitlement, the passage hopefully should uncover at least some areas of your heart that you would prefer to keep hidden. Back to the story of my buddy running into the tree. What if he had gotten up and done it again and again and again and again? There is grace for us to run into trees, but part of that grace is for us to recognize maybe I shouldn't run around in the woods with a blindfold on. So God's Word is calling us. Maybe you have a struggle with Legalism. Maybe you have a struggle with licentiousness. Maybe you have a, uh, a struggle with uh, wasting time. Maybe you have a struggle with all of these different things that we've explored. You have an opportunity this morning to repent, even if it's a habitual, lifelong struggle for you. So here's what we're going to do. In a second, I'm going to pray. The men are going to come forward to serve communion. As they do, as they begin to serve communion, I'm going to just ask a few questions. We're going to put them up on the screen as well. Just questions that might help you to expose some things in your heart this morning. Expose areas where your thinking or your living might be out of step with the call to walk wisely and worshipfully. And I just want to ask you, where do you need to repent this morning? And then I want you, as we take the communion together, as we take the body and blood of Christ together, as you take those things up, I want you to lay down whatever is exposed, whatever you're repenting of. You're forgiven of those things. That's the meaning of the meal. So let me pray for us while the men come down and then we will celebrate communion together. Father, we thank you for your word, for all the different things that it exposes in our hearts, Lord. Knowing in a room this size that uh, probably hits each of us a little bit differently. And so I'm grateful, grateful for its sufficiency, its authority, its clarity. And uh, it's glory. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, that you would use all of these things to make us men and women who walk wisely. And as we do so, that we might be conformed to the image of your son. We ask these things because you are a good father and you give good gifts to your children. So we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.